welcome to the Underground Christian Broadcast. It's Christmas season, so I decided to take a short break from the world to focus on the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ and what the Word of God has to say about it. Specifically, that contentious issue of the virginity of Mary that preceded the birth of Jesus. This is one of those doctrines that give many Christians trouble, possibly because the truth that it conveys is often so poorly explained. In fact, it was this doctrine, mechanically repeated each Christmas, that drove me away from Christianity and into the heart of the world that we've been patiently evaluating. I remember thinking that the story of Christ's birth makes absolutely no worldly sense, and the predictable sermon that always accompanied it didn't do anything to help me understand the events any more than did the nativity scene that depicted halos floating over people's heads. If this is the best that Christianity can offer, I thought at the time, I'll just join the army and earn some money to go to college and become a scientist, which is exactly what I did. If it weren't for the love of God and his remarkable patience and kindness toward me, I would have gladly stayed in that world, dumb and happy. So on this day, leading up to the celebration of her son's birth, let's take a closer look at just why the virginity of Mary is essential to the entire Bible story. If you're new to Christianity or to Bible study, one of the first rules you should memorize is that the Bible is internally consistent. God wrote it through the agency of many people over many centuries. Just listen to episode 6 for more information on that. And God is omniscient, meaning that he knows everything. He also can't lie or deceive, so therefore everything that he says, whether it's written or oral, is true. When you combine these facts, the logical conclusion is that the original texts of the Bible were 100% factual and correct. Now, we can argue a little bit about whether the current texts have been reconstructed perfectly from the originals, and we can debate the accuracy of this translation or that translation. But the bottom line is that nothing that God wrote into the original biblical texts can be internally inconsistent. If in one place the Bible says that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, and if it means by virgin that Mary was sexually pure, then it has to mean that everywhere else it says it. So let's see what one of those texts actually says. In Matthew 1.18 and 19, the author puts it this way. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. This little paragraph contains a mouthful of information, so let's break it down piece by piece. In ancient Jewish culture, the betrothal period predated the wedding by a long period of time, often a year or more. Betrothal was not an engagement in the way that we 21st century Americans might think about it. Betrothal was a legal commitment, just as if the couple were married, and it carried all of the legal obligations of being married. However, during the betrothal period, neither partner was permitted to have intimate relations with each other or even to live together. They were to remain apart until the actual marriage ceremony. That's why the text reads, Betrothed to Joseph before they came together. Coming together is a polite way of saying having intimate sexual relations. In Christian culture, we call it consummation of the marriage. During this period of betrothal, Joseph noticed something odd about his future wife. She was obviously getting a little bit rotund in the middle. Clearly she was pregnant and it was impossible for her to hide it. Matthew fills us in on the reason for this situation. It was caused by the operation of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, Joseph didn't have the advantage of the book of Matthew to explain it to him, so from his perspective, she must have done it the old-fashioned way, 
which meant she had sex outside of marriage. That was bad, not only because she would have been unfaithful, which is what comes to mind in the 21st century, but it made her ceremonially and legally unfit to be his wife. In fact, Jewish law gave Joseph the option of divorcing and publicly humiliating Mary and her family, or alternately, of having her stoned to death. Adultery was a capital offense in that culture, and stoning was the prescribed execution method. Public humiliation of that sort often led to stoning anyway, so whatever choice Joseph made was not going to be very pleasant for the young girl. But Joseph was a good man who actually cared about Mary, so instead of either of those choices, he opted to have his young wife put away secretly. He would send her quietly back to good old dad for safekeeping, where she would live out her days unmarried but without the dents that stoning inevitably brought. God, however, had some other plans. In a dream, he told Joseph what actually happened so that Joseph would not do anything rash, but instead would help Mary carry the baby through to term. The point here is that the entire passage suggests the importance of a new wife being a sexual virgin, since that was the accepted Hebrew standard for marriage. A more direct passage about the condition of Mary occurs in Matthew 1.23, where it reads, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Let me say that again. You know, the word behold comes up a lot. It's kind of an expression of, of surprise and awe. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a paraphrase of Isaiah 7.14, which reads, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So here we have a New Testament passage and the parallel Old Testament passage that both use the word that's translated as virgin. Now, there are some people who say that the term virgin does not mean a virgin in the sense of never having had sexual relations with a man, but rather it means a young woman or unmarried woman. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was therefore not a virgin in the sexual sense, but just a young unmarried woman. And that was certainly the story that the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day liked to tell about him in an effort to bring shame and disrepute to his name. They didn't like this uneducated peasant nobody butting into their religious interpretations and stealing their admiration. So they spent most of their time trying to make him look as bad as they could in front of the crowds who inevitably surged around him to listen to his words. In John chapter 8, these Jewish leaders show up, dragging a woman behind them in an attempt to set up Jesus. There's a whole unexpected lesson in that event, but I'm going to quote just enough of that section to set the stage about Mary's physical condition. Now, early in the morning, he, Jesus, came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. John 8, 2-3. The scribes were the intellectual legal experts on Jewish religion, and the Pharisees were the physical practitioner experts of the Jewish religion. These two groups liked to gang up on Jesus because, frankly, They needed to pool their resources to have any chance of making him look bad. So here was Jesus in the temple complex, which is the religious, cultural, and educational center of Israel, the Harvard of Judaism, and out of some dusty doorway storm the senior faculty and chairman of this university, dragging some poor woman with them in an attempt to get Jesus to condemn her for adultery. Instead, Jesus rescued the woman and then fingered the religious elites as sinners who are headed for destruction verses 23 to 24. And he, Jesus, said to them, the elites, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. 
Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This came dangerously close to declaring himself to be God, and the scribes and Pharisees just about lost their minds over it. As their anger raged, Jesus turned to his followers who were watching the show and said, and we'll just hit the highlights of verses 31 to 39, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. This is a very famous passage that is infamously misquoted almost everywhere it's found. Libraries especially like to misquote it by taking it completely out of context. They take the idea that we are able to discern real truth only when we accept the words of Jesus Christ and replace it with the idea that we can discern real truth by accepting the words that are found in the libraries, especially when those words conflict with what Jesus was teaching, which they usually do. But back to the Pharisees. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus replied, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. And here we get to the point of this passage for our discussion. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. You can see from this little exchange that the Hebrews were very concerned about sexual sin. The term fornication is not a very popular term these days, probably because it refers to a broad family of sexual sin. And in a culture that worships diverse sexual practices in all kinds of venues under all types of circumstances, that is a very unpleasant idea. These religious leaders were implying that they were born from a sexually pure and righteous bloodline descended from Abraham, one of the greatest figures in Jewish culture, whereas Jesus was born from a sexually impure and unrighteous harlot. They were parroting the popular smear of the day that Jesus' mother was an adulteress who had sex outside of marriage, and that made Jesus an illegitimate child. This idea of sexual sin and illegitimacy may not mean much today, but to the ancient Jewish Israelites, being an illegitimate child as a result of sexual sin was just about as bad a reputation as your mother and you could get. It was a deliberate attempt to smear Jesus in front of the crowd. So this idea that Mary was an adulteress who had a hookup before getting engaged to her man Joseph isn't very new. It's been around a long time. Therefore, it's not surprising that some people today like to use the word virgin to mean a maiden or young woman because it implies that Mary got pregnant the old-fashioned way, and therefore Jesus is some other guy's son. To see if that idea is valid, let's look at what the words translated as virgin mean in their original languages. Let's start with the parallel passages in Matthew and Isaiah. The New Testament Greek word that's translated as virgin in Matthew is parthenos. Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, which is a generally unbiased academic resource, defines it as a. a marriageable maiden, or b. a woman who has never had sexual intercourse with a man, or c. one's marriageable daughter. Those three definitions might seem different, but they're actually all related. Each implies sexual purity because that's what marriageable meant in that Jewish culture. 
popping over to the Old Testament Hebrew in Isaiah, let's see if it's any different. The word that's translated as virgin is from the Hebrew word alma. Strong's Exhaustive Concordance defines Alma as a sexually pure virgin young woman of marriageable age. It goes on to clarify, There is no instance where it can be proved that Alma designates a young woman who is not a sexual virgin. The fact of virginity is obvious in Genesis 24-43, where Alma is used of one who is being sought as a bride for Isaac. The reason that the commentary is put in that section is because sexual purity was a Jewish requirement for marriage, except in specific cases, for example, where a brother was obligated to marry his deceased brother's widow in order to raise children to his brother. So using the term virgin as a word implying sexual purity is consistent in both the Hebrew and Greek languages and was part of the Jewish cultural expectations of the time. But there are more important reasons for the term to refer to sexual purity, and this is where it gets really interesting. The first reason can be deduced from the repetition of statements in both Isaiah 7.14 and Matthew 23. Isaiah 7.14 reads, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we read Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Any time the Bible repeats an idea, especially when it repeats it almost verbatim, it is placing special emphasis on that idea, and there are two important and connected ideas in these two passages. The first is that a son is born to a virgin, and the second is that the son is called Emmanuel, which Matthew helpfully translates as God with us. Now, this passage could mean that a son would be born to a young woman, but that hardly seems worth mentioning if you're God. To get our attention and convey who he is and the power he has over all of reality, God likes to employ two important devices simultaneously. He uses signs, which are events that point uniquely to him, and he uses wonders, which are miracles that evidence a supernatural origin from him. A baby born to a young woman neither points uniquely to God nor is miraculous, but a baby born to a sexual virgin both points to God and is miraculous. Therefore, the latter would be a sign. Furthermore, to assign the auxiliary name God with us to Jesus not only references his own divinity, but ties his person to the term virgin and the implied signs and wonders of it. God is telling us that Jesus is no ordinary human being. His special status is testified by his birth status, which is that he was born to a woman who had never had sexual relations with a man. Mary herself testified as much in Luke 1 when an angel from God said to her, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? Obviously, Mary knew men in the sense that she spoke with them and interacted with them, so that's not what she meant. She's politely saying that she has never had sex with a man. In other words, she was a sexual virgin. She said it herself. Here is another rule about the Bible that can help with this idea. The whole book is about Jesus Christ. Most of the book emphasizes the climatic event of the main storyline, which is Jesus' second coming when he is crowned king of the earth. But some portions of the book focus on his first coming, for instance, when he was born to a virgin. And one key section of scripture, Genesis 3.15, focuses on both his first and second coming. In that section, Satan induced Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, and then God spoke a most interesting prophecy that bears on our inspection of this virgin concept. 
God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is obviously talking about Jesus, because he's the only one who can bruise Satan's head in the sense of inflicting substantial damage on him. Satan is also the only one given the authority as the ruler of the world to hurt Jesus by hurting his church, which I believe is represented by his heel. There are two things to note about this scripture that alludes to our examination of the virginity of Mary. The first is that God places enmity between the woman and Satan. It can be read as enmity between Eve and Satan, or her descendants in general and Satan, but that reading would not be entirely correct. Not all of Eve's descendants are enemies of Satan, and, except for the appearance of Jesus on the earth, very few of them would actually be Satan's enemies. In fact, most people would be his allies. And it's interesting that we tend to think that the word her refers to Eve. Maybe the her refers to a future her, the one who will bear the Christ child since the passage references the person of Jesus. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. I think it makes much more sense that the her refers to Mary. In prophecy, there are often two time elements involved. The first is a near-term, partial fulfillment of the prophecy, which in this case would have been Eve and her children, or at least one of them, who foreshadowed the complete fulfillment that would only occur through Mary and Jesus. After all, if Jesus is the real enemy of Satan, then it makes the most sense that the her refers to Mary, his human mother. Then there is this term, seed. Almost universally in scripture, the term seed in this context refers to the descendants of a man or to a man's reproductive capabilities. But here, and only here, it clearly refers to the seed of a woman. Why? Because it has to. There is no male seed because there is no biological male involved in making that seed, only a biological female. And that would be true only if Mary was a sexual virgin. Mary produced the seed of Jesus, who is the enemy of Satan. Isn't it clear that God had this whole thing planned from the beginning? But the virginity of Mary gets even more interesting than that when reviewing the lineage of Jesus. There are two lineages to Jesus that are defined in Scripture. One of them is found in Matthew chapter 1, and the other is found in Luke chapter 3. The Matthew lineage traces the descendants of Jesus down from Abraham to David, then through David's son Solomon down to Joseph, who is described not as Jesus' father, but as the husband of Mary. The Luke passage traces the lineage of Jesus up from Jesus through Mary to David's son Nathan, then up to Abraham and ultimately to Adam. So Jesus traces his roots to King David through two of David's sons, Solomon and Nathan, This fulfills the prophecies that a descendant of David will occupy the throne of Israel forever. These occur all over the place. For example, in 2 Samuel 7.16 and Jeremiah 33.20-21, in case you want to look them up. Both of Jesus' lineages trace royal blood back to King David, which gives Jesus the pedigree to claim the kingship from King David. But there's a problem. Joseph's lineage goes through Coniah, and God placed a strong curse on that particular king. Coniah was the son of Aliakim, who was placed on the throne in Jerusalem by Pharaoh Necho. To keep everything confusing, Eliakim's name was changed to Jehoiakim. So Coniah was the son of Eliakim slash Jehoiakim. Coniah was also known as Jeconiah and Jehoiachin, 
just to make things even more confusing, but we'll stick with his name, Kaniah. So Kaniah took over from his father Eliakim, but he only ruled a few months in Israel before being hauled off to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. Kaniah and Eliakim were evil kings who turned away from God and represented all the detestable human elements that existed in Jerusalem at that time and which rebelled against God. So with that brief background, let's go to Jeremiah 22 and read verses 24 to 30 to find out just what the problem is with this king in the lineage of Jesus. As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, a signet being a seal of authority from a king, yet I would pluck you off, and I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out, and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they desire to return, there they shall not return. Is this man Kaniah a despised broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Now, Kaniah was not childless, as it turns out, so this is a phrase that does not literally mean childless. It means spiritually childless in the eyes of God. The practical reality of God's spiritual curse is that no descendant of Coniah would ever be allowed to sit as king of Israel, and none of them ever did. Yet here he is in Jesus' lineage through Joseph, so if Jesus is king of Israel, what gives? It's the miracle of the virgin birth that solved this dilemma. It's important to realize that Jesus is the final historic person who could ever prove his descent from King David, and that no one after Jesus is able to prove their royal heritage. The reason is that all of the meticulous Jewish birth records which they kept for this purpose were destroyed by the Romans in the AD 70 sacking of Jerusalem and the scattering of Jews around the empire. There are no surviving legitimate records from that period. All Israel has left after the 70 AD sacking are historic memories and verbal history, except for the records in the Bible, which are testified by eyewitnesses and therefore constitute legal documents in ancient Jewish culture. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, he claimed the title of King of Israel, and no person after Jesus can establish his right to rule through legitimate documentation. So it is Jesus or nobody. But what about Kaniah and the curse? Well, Jesus traces his lineage from Joseph to Kaniah, but Joseph was Jesus' adoptive father, not his biological one. Jesus is not Joseph's biological descendant, so he does not violate the curse. Jesus' biological connection to King David is only through his mother Mary, who follows Solomon's bloodline. Therefore, a blood descendant of Kaniah does not sit on the throne in the person of Jesus Christ. However, under both Jewish and Roman law, an adoptive son can still inherit his adoptive father's estate and position, which gives Jesus the legal authority to act as king through both his adoptive human father Joseph and Mary. Therefore, as the first son to Joseph, 
he has the right to rule legally through both of his lineages. But Jesus is more than a man, and he's more than a human king. He's God. He is God, and he accomplished something that no ordinary human being could accomplish because we're all a seed of a biological male. And that male seed carries the curse of God in the form of original sin. This idea of seed from a male exposes an interesting element of satanic worship and satanic edifices. They always glorify sex and the male reproductive organ. That's just a stray thought. Anyway, the divinity of Jesus was provided by the Holy Spirit, who is his actual father. So Jesus inherited his divine authority through the joining of the Holy Spirit with human biology. So let's summarize all these points. Unless Mary were a virgin, she could not fulfill the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. Unless Mary were a virgin, Jesus would be an illegitimate child and therefore not suitable for royal authority. Unless Mary were a virgin, the Holy Spirit could not beget Jesus, which would eliminate the basis for his divine authority. If Joseph begot Jesus, then God would not allow him to be king because of the curse of King Caniah. Mary testifies of her own sexual purity, and so does Joseph. Finally, the terms that are translated virgin from both the Hebrew and Greek both support this idea of sexual virginity and purity. So the only way that all of these conditions are satisfied, and remember this is the Bible, it was written by God, and so it's all true. So the only way that all of these conditions are satisfied is if Mary were a true sexual virgin who got pregnant from the Holy Spirit. I want to mention a serious problem that is taught and practiced by many Roman Catholics. Roman Catholicism venerates Mary as a co-redemptrix who is co-equal to Jesus in status and authority. The veneration of Mary is a relic of the ancient pagan religions that Roman Catholicism emerged from. The Roman people worshipped many gods, but one of their favorites was Diana, who is also known as Artemis in the Greek pantheon. She was a favorite because she was the goddess of fertility, and many, if not most, of their fertility rituals involved sex and orgies centered around her worship. If there's one thing that's going to be tough to blot out of existence, it's a religion that features mandatory sex with prostitutes as its central feature of worship. To tackle this problem and establish Christianity as the official state religion, the Roman leadership needed to replace Diana worship with something different. Since Christians would never accept sex rituals, the Roman leadership decided that they could use Mary as a sort of anti-Diana to entice the Diana worshippers to switch sides. Along with brand new Christian morality, Mary would bring along a brand new Christian chastity for the masses to rally around, featuring Mary as the resurrected Diana figure. It must have been a hard sell, but it somehow worked. It worked so well, in fact, that Catholics today still venerate and pray to Mary as some kind of a replacement or supplemental deity to Christ. Unfortunately, Mary veneration is based on a terrible misreading of Scripture and is therefore sin. Scripture's very clear on this issue. No less an authority than the Apostle Peter stated it most clearly in Acts chapter 4, verses 8 to 12, when he testified before the Jewish Sanhedrin and said, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, 
whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that includes the name Mary. Special as she was, she has no part in our salvation. She can't put in a good word for us, and Jesus does not take advice from her or anyone else for that matter. God is not missing any information, so he has no need to listen to the whimsies of his fleshy creations, even one as special as Mary. And Mary knew that. If you don't believe me, then listen to her own words in Luke 1.47, which is the song of Mary. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Mary, by her own admission, needed a Savior. That means she was not sinless, and she knew it. Sinless people have no need of a Savior, but Mary needed one. Sinful people disqualify themselves from salvific acts, so we have no means to save. And all have fallen short of the glory of God and need salvation, even Mary. Therefore, she has no authority to act as a co-redemptrix. She is certainly a very special person and worthy of praise, but she's not divine, has no special status to intervene in human affairs, and should not be worshipped. And that, my friends, is the story of the virginity of Mary leading up to the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. Wait until you hear about the three guys who dropped by one day shortly after Jesus was born. Maybe we'll dust off that event and take a close look at it too. Until then, if you found this podcast interesting, useful, important, or at least entertaining, please recommend it to your family and friends and neighbors because they deserve to know about virginity at Christmas too. Give it a thumbs up or a happy face or whatever else your app has to encourage others to listen and do it twice. Like I say each week, this is not a commercial enterprise and I'm not a professional podcaster. I'm just one small unlucky guy doing... Uh, nope, that's not what it reads. I'm just one small and unlikely guy doing what I can to bring a sliver of light into this darkening world. There is no budget for this podcast, or at least not much of one, so it's limited to what I can invest both in time and money. That's why it does not get posted as regularly as I would like. God will have to help me if he wants me to post it more often because I'm really at a loss as to how to do that. Hopefully, even if he won't do that, he will still allow me to keep posting this podcast regularly, if not often, so that it can reach more people. Please pray for me and for it to be influential in the lives of everyone who is exposed to it. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine platforms, including Podbeam, Podbean, hmm, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, and finally Pandora. Look for the bright green icon, because we here at Underground Christian really care about green, like lettuce. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. I or one of my many busy elves will respond to it as soon as possible, or at least as soon as I read it. If you wish to help with the podcast, please let me know in an email. Until next time, keep your eyes up, your head down, and if it is in your heart, go out your back door and do the work of God. But if your heart is hard like a stone toward God, just ask him and he will give you a new soft one much like flesh. But you do have to ask. It's really not that hard, and you're allowed to whisper too. <laughs> <laughs>